Hello and welcome to the Marysville Church of Christ podcast. This is Bishop Darby. Welcome to Woven. Over the next 13 weeks, we are going to be exploring the stories, the moments, and the people that make us who we are as a church. Along the way, we're going to be exploring the key moments in church history, examining things that were done that still to this day reverberate so profoundly through our churches that oftentimes we don't even know happened at all. To that end, we are going to be starting today in the earliest of the early church, as the apostles are still uh, guiding the kingdom in its infancy. And we're going to be looking through a lot of what happened there and how it affects us today. Growing up in the Church of Christ, I was always taught that we are trying to be the church of the first century, that we desire to walk in step with what they did. Yet I found it odd when I went to seminary that we just never talked about it, nor did we study it at all. We would talk about the things that the 1950s did or the 1890s. We talked about things during the Great Awakening and the end of the 18th century. But we very seldom ever went to the first 200 or 300 years of church history. It is almost as if we, simply by perusing the Bible with a 21st century Christian Gentile, Western, post-enlightened, post-modern American lens can fully grasp the first century church. But I would like to assert that not only is that implausible, but it is also a very revealing element of pride in our hearts. But the reality is, we need the early church. It can guide us, it can lead us, instruct us, and teach us in things that we never could find on our own. If we are going to claim the early church, we need to be able to understand what they believed. And we need to be able to understand what they are going through and what they actually looked like. Today, our objective is simply to ready ourselves for the study of the early church by addressing some key concerns, setting up some groundwork, hashing through the vital, albeit uncomfortable, conclusions this will lead us to. But before we jump into the series proper, I'd really like to explore the early church and make two preliminary notes. First, I'd like us to talk about the primacy of the early church. Second, we'll get to later in the class, a church without the Bible. The primacy of the early church. I would like us to start in a rather strange place, looking at a couple of very important, if not overlooked, passages of Scripture. For instance, in the third verse of the book of Jude, Judas writes, Beloved, while readying myself to write to you about the salvation we share, I find it necessary to write and appeal to you to work for the faith that was given once and for all to the saints. We proclaim what was from the beginning, John writes in 1 John 1, 1 through 3. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and touched with our hands, all the things about the word of life. This life was revealed, and we have seen it, and we testify to it, and give it to you, the eternal life that was there with the Father, which was revealed to us in the Son. The revelation of Jesus Christ and the teaching of the apostles were given to the first century once and for all. This means, on an obvious level, that they were the ones who literally saw and heard and experienced either the teaching of Christ or the teachings of the apostles. But on a deeper level, this means that they were taught about the letters themselves by the people who wrote them. When they had questions about the epistle to the, to the Romans, for instance, they could just ask Paul. 
when they were confused about something in the Gospel of John, they could, you know, ask John. This means that the first and second generation of Christians had pipelines directly to the apostles or the disciples of the apostles. They had insights, understandings, and access that we couldn't even dream of today. Because of that, I believe the early church has a place of primacy. What does that mean? It means I will be deferring my interpretations, my understandings, and my conceptions to these first 200 years of the church. To not do so, to not believe that they know best, is to somehow believe that I, 2,000 years later and without any personal relationship to any of the apostles, could know more about Paul than, say, Clement, who sat beside him at the end of his life. Or I could know more about the Apostle John and his writings than Polycarp, who was his head student. This is a dangerous and proud game. To be clear, let me be explicit. I believe it is the prime objective of the modern church to rediscover the early church. Secondly, a church without the Bible. In many ways, we already put a great deal of emphasis on the first 200 years of church history without even really even knowing it. In fact, every time we cite or use the Bible, we are putting an emphasis on the early church. As we will see later in the series when we discuss how we got the New Testament, um, we will see that it took until 382 for the canon of the New Testament to even be established. Thus, the first two, uh, 382 years of history, we did not have a Bible fully formed. And we relied on tradition and history, the first 200 years, to guide us, preserve us, and establish it. We're going to talk through, as we go through the series, about men like Irenaeus, men like Athanasius, who would become instrumental in the development of the church. But we'll come back to that in week four. For now, every time we read the Bible, we owe it to these men and this history. Yet we, especially in conservative Protestant circles, will take and vehemently support the Bible while also denying the importance of the history that literally gave it to us. History of the church was like a handmaiden that handed to us the beautiful Bible we now have. And we need to trust in them. I believe that it is time we return to the early church, but actually return to the early church by looking at them, by learning from them. To be frank, there will be a lot of moments in the study that are going to leave us feeling uncomfortable and will challenge our modern traditions and our modern beliefs, but I think that's good. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourself, or do you not realize this, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. We often believe that there is an imaginary divide between biblical history and church history, as if one happened and the other followed later. But this is not the case. What got canonized in the 4th century to make up the Bible was simply a segment of what made up the 1st century church. Again, as we will return to in our understanding of how we got the Bible in week 4, just because something did not make the cut on the canonization at the Council of Rome in 382 does not mean that it doesn't reveal a great deal about what the early church does. In fact, they serve like snapshots, signposts along the way, for us to be able to see what the early church was doing. Let's put it just this way. The Marysville Church of Christ celebrated its 100th year anniversary last year. And yet, could someone fully explain, identify, and examine every up and down, every issue, every controversy, every hardship, 
that has hit the Marysville Church of Christ in those 100 years, could they summarize them in 27 letters? Of course not. Yet that's what we often think about the New Testament. We think that somehow 40%, which is the most amount a single book ever talks about the early church in the New Testament, 40% of 27 letters could fully identify everything we need to know about dozens of churches spread over three continents over 200 years. That's a ridiculous claim. We obviously need the history that we often look away from. This means that if we are going to effectively, and I hope we will, effectively look at the early church, we need to be familiar with some of the documents that help us to learn more about what they did. These documents we're going to be exploring more in week three, but I'll just go ahead and give you a teaser in case you're overly curious now. There was a book called the Didache. It was written by the apostles and dates between 50 and 68 AD. There was a letter called the first uh, letter of Clement, written by Clements, the Clement mentioned in Philippians 4.3, in either 68 or 70 AD. What about the epistles of Ignatius, written by Ignatius, a disciple of John the Apostle, between the years of 96 and 101 AD? and circulated right around the same time that the book of Revelation was finished. There was a guy named Polycarp who wrote a letter to the Philippians between 96 and 108, contemporary with the books of John. There was an epistle of Barnabas, the mentor of Paul, between 70 and 80 AD. My point is, is that there are so many documents that we often pass over, so many things we could learn from and and snapshots we're missing out on. These were not written after biblical history as if they were tacked on or added at the end, but they were our history. We will be jumping into this part of our history for the remainder of this week and next week to get a perspective of what the first century church actually looked like. Again, to be clear, I believe the first 200 years of church history is an infallible example of what a divinely inspired man-made institution can be. As we are getting the Church of the Apostles and their immediate predecessors. Now, next week we're going to be talking a little bit about the uh, claim that many people may immediately have. Saying that, well, couldn't the early church just have fallen apart that quickly? And I would like to remind us of two simple passages to give us comfort in preparation for that. First, consider this. The role of the Holy Spirit found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I, Paul says, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthily of the calling that which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, putting up with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you too were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Here in this passage, Paul is identifying the functional role of the Holy Spirit. It is the bond of peace and the unifying force, both of the body and the baptism of the church. Therefore, the Holy Spirit is not going to allow the kingdom of God to simply fall apart before God has a chance at getting the Bible circulated. To challenge the first 200 years of the church, the claim that it somehow missed all of the mark and that we wouldn't rediscover it until 1896, when the Churches of Christ started really uh, thriving, is, to me, a rather odd claim. It's to claim that the Holy Spirit failed in what he told Paul and others he would do. Not only that, but think about what Jesus says to the apostles in Matthew chapter 16. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven, and whatever you release on earth will have been released in heaven. 
See, here, Jesus is giving the power of the church to the apostles, telling them that they have binding authority over the budding church. God will be guiding and directing them as they manage the development of the church as a whole. Yet, if we claim that the first 200 years got it all wrong, then we're claiming that Jesus lied to the apostles. That, of course, they wouldn't be able to do it. And, of course, God wouldn't guide them. There's many other passages we could turn to, but I wanted to offer us a biblical reason why I think this thesis of this class is so important. That the early church is an infallible example of what a divinely inspired, man-made institution can be. And it should be our example as well. As we wrap up today, I would like us to kind of look ahead of where we're going. The books that later were canonized into the New Testament outline for us the people who would carry the church into the next decade. Next week, we will be exploring two of these key individuals, a man by the name of Clement and a man by the name of Polycarp, a follower of Peter and Paul and a follower of John. And we will explore how they managed this transition. We will be looking at the stories that circulated the early church about them and the challenge they still have for us. See, I would like us to remind ourselves of one very important thing. We are not a random church that it came about 200 years ago in some small place in Kentucky. Rather, we are part of a greater tradition, of a greater hope, of a greater story. And it's time that we reconnect with that story. I'll see you next week as we come back to Woven, the fabrics that make us who we are. God bless.